0: Well, this next passage we're going to be reading in Revelation 19 is really a test and a challenge of the degree to which our praise is spirit-generated. Uh, very difficult subject material in which to praise God, and yet the redeemed in heaven do so joyfully, easily, uh, empowered by God's Spirit. Revelation 19:1 through 5. After these things I heard, as it were, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, the salvation and power and glory of our God, because his judgments are true and just, because he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his slaves by her hand. And a second voice said, Hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his slaves and those who fear him, small and great. Amen. Father, we pray that as we dig into your word, that you would transform our hearts by the living A Word of God, that it would bring healing where healing is needed, but it would excise out of our hearts anything that is resistant to being transformed into the image of Christ uh, by the power of your Spirit. Take these words, take my uh, fallible lips, and use them, Father, uh, to minister your grace and uh, uh, your power into the lives of this congregation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it probably seems... uh, (laughs) Pretty shocking to modern sensibilities to have these words about the, the judgment and destruction of Babylon to occur right before the beautiful description, uh, description of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which occurs in verse 6. But the bride is, after all, marrying a mighty warrior who uh, defeats all his and her enemies. Uh, this mighty warrior has been her defender and uh, been very successful at it, and the the bride is eternally grateful and sings her praises. And the first thing I want you to notice about this song of praise is that the rejoicing over God's judgments takes place in heaven. Verse 1 says, After these things I heard, as it were, the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Now on earth we have a little bit harder time rejoicing over God's retributive judgments and I suspect that we struggle over this uh, in part because we're infected by sin. Uh, Sin distorts uh, our, our vision of the true nature of reality, but when we get to heaven we are going to see clearly that God's ways are perfect and beautiful, they are just, they are good we're going to see them as definitely praiseworthy. But down here below, we've got even Reformed and Reconstructionist people nowadays who have difficulty over God's judgments and even God's uh, death penalty judgments in the Old Testament. And uh, they struggle with those things. And I don't think that those struggles are ultimately exegetical struggles. They are struggles to see the perfection of God's character through the cataract-laden eyes of our sinful flesh. I guarantee you that when these reconstructionists get to heaven, they're going to be praising right along with everybody else. You too, you will too. Um, They're going to realize God's perfect and beautiful justice has never changed. Why? Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2 says that every Old Testament crime corresponded with a just penalty. That's what he calls it, a just penalty. The Greek word is podesia, and it clearly refers to the criminal penalties that God had instituted in the Old Testament. To say that those penalties have passed away or have changed is to a certain degree to say that there was some injustice in the Old Testament, and we've got things better now in the New Testament. And of course, that's exactly what the modern church tends to think, that the Old Testament was too strict, it was too sharp and hard, maybe a little bit unjust. Well, when people accuse the Old Testament of being unjust or being strict or harsh, I just point them to the book of Revelation, I say, read the book of Revelation, there's really not a lick of difference between the way the Old Testament and the book of Revelation looks at God's justice. The angels and saints in Revelation praise and worship God for exactly the same judgments that the Old Testament said were good and perfect and just, and that David rejoiced over. And I think we need to realign our thinking from time to time to God's Word. When you get to heaven, it's going to be instantly the case. We have to keep working toward that while we're here below. Second, this rejoicing is loud. It is enthusiastic worship. Now, I will agree, in part, it was loud because it was a humongous multitude of probably millions of people in heaven. I remember when I used to go to the PCA General Assembly, it would give me chills during the worship services to hear 1,200 men belting out psalms and hymns. And uh, you were just immersed in the, in the sound of it. It was just incredible. For me, I felt like it was just a tiny foretaste of the loud voice of millions of people worshiping God uh, in heaven. But since heaven is supposed to be the paradigm for our worship on earth... It should encourage us to be enthusiastic as well, even when the subject matter is as heavy as the subject matter of their worship service. We have a tendency to think that worship has gone well when the subject matter is pleasant. But I want you to notice in this passage, this is awesome worship, and they're worshiping God uh, for who he is. You know, I guarantee you, the worship of heaven is not going to be adjusting itself to meet the seeker-sensitive values of man. It's the other way around. We need to be conformed to God's image. We need to learn to appreciate God's values, not vice versa. So here was loud, enthusiastic worship of who? The God of all judgment. Third thing I notice here is that this worship used the name of God. Now that's a controversial point in some circles, but the word hallelujah is actually a Greek transcription of a Hebrew name. Okay, it means praise Jehovah, or if you want uh, probably a more accurate uh, pronunciation, praise Yehovah. Praise Yehovah. Now while the word Lord is an appropriate shortcut Uh, way of referring to Jehovah the New Testament uses the word Lord it is not the only way that we should speak of God this verse very clearly says we are to pronounce Jehovah's name now there are Jews and Christians who superstitiously believe you cannot ever pronounce the name of God in fact they won't even they won't even write down the term God even though it's not a name they put G underline D you've probably seen that in the literature right well, that superstitious practice has absolutely no warrant in the scripture. I uh, did a quick search on my computer um, Bible uh, this past week, and it showed that the name Jehovah is written out 6,828 times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 12, verse 8, and in over 100 other passages, it talks about God's people calling upon the name of Jehovah. Now, it is true. In the second commandment, we are forbidden, absolutely forbidden, from taking the name of Jehovah in vain. But it uses the name there, and many times Scripture commands us to use it. For example, uh, Scripture commands ministers to minister in His name, Deuteronomy eighteen five and seven. I think I've been negligent, negligent in this practice. Uh, I've just gone along with the word Lord, but we really ought to. Take literally the Scripture. When it uses the name Yehovah, I think I need to use that name Yehovah. God commands ministers to do so. He commands a congregation to bless the name of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10 verse 8 and 21 verse 5. Members of the church are commanded to take oaths in his name, Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, chapter 10, verse 20, to declare the name Jehovah in Zion, Psalm 102, verse 21, to bless his holy name, Psalm 103, verse 1, to call upon his name, Psalm 105, verse 1, etc., etc., etc. You go through the Old Testament, you will see that it was not at all shy about using the name of the Lord, appropriately, of course, but it used it. It's the one fault that I find with the new blue psalter that we use most of our music from. Um, in other ways, it's a fantastic psalter. We love it, but what's, what it's done is it's just the old red psalter pretty consistently used. it spelled it Jehovah, but it consistently used the name of the Lord. The new one only uses the word Lord. In other ways, it's a much superior uh, psalter, but that's the one fault that I, that I find with it. In any case, don't be shy about worshiping God with his holy name. He is honored when we love his name. Now let's look next at what they were worshiping God for. I think this is very instructive. They didn't just worship God for his love. Okay, that is an awesome attribute. They didn't just worship God for his mercy. Uh, That is incredibly wonderful as well. I never tire of praising God for his mercies which are new every day in my life. It makes me want to sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah. But verse 1 also says the salvation and power and glory of our God are three more reasons to praise his glorious name, and he goes on to talk about his judgments as well. But on these three, Barclay rightly says this, The salvation of God should awaken our gratitude. That's pretty obvious. We're saved. We ought to be grateful. The glory of God should awaken our reverence. And the power of God should awaken our trust. Gratitude, reverence, trust. These are the elements that make up real praise. Let's look at each one of those words. Salvation that brings gratitude. How often do you praise and worship God for having saved you? After all, he rescued you from an eternity of hell. He rescued you from your sins. He rescued you from the clutches of Satan. If that is not reason to praise and worship him every day, I do not know what is. But he not only rescues us initially in our salvation, but he, he saves us from our sins. That's the part of salvation that we refer to as sanctification. And he also saves us from car accidents and sicknesses, and all kinds of other tragedies, and yes, the Greek word for salvation is used of precisely those kinds of things, of health, and even of food supplies that the Lord brings, and a shipwreck, you know, um, the the shipwreck that was um, uh, in the book of Acts with, with, with the Apostle Paul. James Utley says of this word, it can refer to the Old Testament concept of physical deliverance, but also probably relates to a total eternal salvation for the individual, the society, and the planet. Romans 8, which Utley referred to as well, uh, talks about the very planet along with our bodies being redeemed, being saved by Almighty God as it gets restored in the future. And so in what way did AD 70, which is what the context is, in what way did AD 70 usher us into a new appreciation for salvation? wasn't it the cross that reverses history yes it was it's the cross that reverses history but there is a transition period of 40 years between the beginning of the new covenant and the ending of the old covenant okay and there is a celebration point when the old is completely done away with Eighty seventy 70 is a critical pivot point in history now obviously it's not as critical as the resurrection of Christ uh, that, that his death and resurrection is the critical pivot point, but uh, it, it is still a pivotal date. Duncan McKenzie, in his commentary, says, "...although the new covenant was instituted in AD 30, the old covenant wasn't totally dissolved until the AD 70 destruction of the temple. During this transition time of AD 30 to AD 70, the already not yet of the kingdom... The old covenant was obsolete and fading away, but not yet totally gone. As the writer of Hebrews notes, he has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So it was almost there. It was ready to vanish away. Now there was something about 8070 that ushered us in and ushered in the continuing application of salvation in a much broader way than we had ever seen before. We saw in a previous sermon, for example, that heaven was cleansed of all demons. That had not happened before. You read in the book of Job, where demons constantly had access to heaven. They cannot have access to heaven any longer. Um, uh, Romans 16 says that God was about to crush Satan under the feet of the church shortly. And it was shortly, you know, within 15 years. Depending on where you dated, it might be much closer. But within 15 years of Romans being written, Satan was bound in the pit. Another thing that had been finalized, 40 years after Christ got the process started, was that Christ had now put away his former adulterous wife Israel, was about to institute the marriage feast of the New Covenant Church. A feast that would keep getting larger and larger as more and more of planet Earth became converted. 8070 was the turning point that guaranteed the eventual conversion of the world, which is what the next chapters are going to be preoccupied with. And it is a salvation what? Of every tribe and nation, just as Ray talked about. It is a universal salvation, going extending to the to the ends of the actually the universe, because there's going to be a renovation of even the physical universe, isn't there? It's a salvation of every principality and power, eventually touching even our resurrection bodies. So it is a salvation so glorious, and there are some ways in which it begins in 8030, but there is a pivotal change in 8070 that makes the saints and the angels in heaven realize that this, this is so glorious, this is so comprehensive, that it is stunning to even those who are perfected in heaven already. They see much more clearly than we do the enormity and the scope of Christ's salvation. So it makes him praiseworthy. Second, they worship him for his power. There's obviously power demonstrated in the judgments that we've been looking at over the past months from time to time. There's obviously power when enemies get converted like Saul. Wow, that was an amazing turnaround. And a man who hated Christ to now loving him passionately. A man who was a rebel to now worshiping. Uh, there is power demonstrated in God's plan for planet Earth over the next, next uh, several chapters. Nothing but God's infinite power could accomplish what this book says that he is going to accomplish. So that's an, another great reason to worship. They worship because God's glory. To glorify God is simply to showcase and admire his attributes and his character. And his attributes and character are glorious. God's glory is not only known through the salvation of the elect, it's also known through the judgment that he brings upon his enemies. I mean, just think about that for a moment. People wonder why God even allowed sin. Without sinners to rebel against God, without sinners to judge, who would have known that God even had the attribute of wrath? Nobody but God would have known it. So sin in that sense glorified God to the angels. Who would have known, apart from sinners being in existence, what mercy was? We wouldn't even know what the the concept of mercy was because we would never have seen sin sinners in need of mercy. If there had not been people to resist God's uh, love, how would we have known the depths of God's love? So even the negative concepts of God's judgments bring great glory to him, and they elicit wonder and reverence in his people. Now, the next reason it gives for the exuberance of these worshipers is God's true and just judgments of the whore. Verse 2 says, "...because his judgments are true and just, because he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his slaves by her hand. Now this brings us back to where we started, that these saints in heaven, they understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin, they understand the exceeding exaltedness of God's holiness, and the disparity between the two is so great that it of necessity results in either judgment or salvation. And he's dealing here with judgment, The first phrase says, "...because his judgments are true and just." Now, there are many people today who question the truth of God's judgments. They question the justice of God's judgments. But if you reject the Bible's definition of justice, you have no rational basis for even knowing what truth is or knowing what justice is. Jesus said to God the Father, "...your word is truth." Not your word is true. If you say your word is true, that implies your mind is the judge, and okay, I agree, this is true, or this is false. No, 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 no. Your word is truth. It is the standard by which all other truth claims are judged. So he said your word is truth, and at that time, what was the only revealed word that they had? It was the Old Testament. The Old Testament was true. It was just, and Christians need to learn that today. Without the whole Bible defining truth and justice, our nation will only be governed by brute force and power. Now, according to the dictionary, the word that's used there for judgments, chrysus, deals with one or more of four things. The legal process for judging, the legal basis for judging, the court of judges that render judgment, or the punishment or penalty of those judged as guilty. In other words, this is a passage that deals uh, with the controversial aspects of theonomy or God's law. Okay, Do the civil penalties and do the church censures of the Old Testament continue to apply after the time of the cross? This passage would seem to indicate that they do. It doesn't say that some of God's judgments are true and just, it just gives a blanket endorsement to all of God's judgments. Now let me give you some sample scriptures that say the same thing about each of the four dimensions of judgment that the dictionary gives. As to the process of judging, Jesus commanded his church in John 7 verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And in context, he's pointing to the laws of Moses for how to engage in righteous judgment, even on the Sabbath question. It's not enough to know what should be judged. We've got to have a right process by which we judge, and the Pharisees had messed that completely up. Now, the process issue is dealing with things like jurisprudence handling the law and the court and the witnesses and all of those kinds of things. It's very important. You get into a church where they don't know jurisprudence, oh, wow, you could come under incredible, tyrannical uh, court judgments. Uh, 1 Timothy 1 is another similar passage. It lists various crimes of the Old Testament, and it said this, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Why, Why would he say that? Why wouldn't the law of God be good in any case? Why does he say, we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully? He, he's dealing with process. If you're using a good law, but you're using a lousy process in which to bring judgment on that law, he says all of a sudden a good thing becomes a terrible thing. And we see this all of the time. The Pharisees violated due process in the handling of crimes and sins just like Facebook judges today are violating due process even though they may have a good case in terms of biblical law. Okay, Their process stinks and therefore their judgment is no longer any good. Well, that's what Christ was accusing the Pharisees of. By the way, if you want to take a look at Uh, biblical jurisprudence I put um, a starting list of uh, these biblical laws for process not the 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 crimes themselves but what's the process of judging those crimes up on my uh, uh, kaisercommentary.com, and I started it off by showing that there were 15 of God's rules governing process that were completely violated in the trial of Jesus Christ And by the way, we see these principles being violated left and right in the church courts and civil courts. We see it being violated in the way people judge each other and bite and devour each other on Facebook. It is really wrong, wrong. Now, what about the legal basis of judgment or the law itself? Does the Old Testament law continue to be just and true? Yes, it is. In Romans 7, verse 12, Paul said, Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. And in context, he's referring to the Old Testament commandments that he just finished quoting. Right? He's not embarrassed at all by the Old Testament. He said that the Mosaic law as a whole was holy, just, and good. Matthew 5, 17 to 19 says, Till heaven and earth pass away, Christ was going to uphold every detail Of the moral law of God now what about the courts of judges that render judgment that's the third part of the definition there is no just judgment if the proper courts are not used by the way Facebook is not one of those courts and I'm saying that with good reason today has this definition of judgment changed and the answer is no In the Old Testament, there were two and only two courts for making these kinds of judgments that he talks about other than the heavenly court. We're talking human courts here. There were civil courts that judged in terms of a very small set of laws that are called criminal laws, okay? Then there's another set of laws that were dealt with church censures. Now, there are some people who think, hey, the church can discipline people for any sin. That is absolutely not true. Uh, and, And so you get tyrannical courts down here below because they don't know what their jurisdiction is. They're overstepping their bounds. Now, there are other people, and we see this on Facebook, who are so frustrated that a court has not given justice that they feel, I've got to take justice into my own hands, and they begin a lynch mob which again violates, lynch mobs violate biblical process. Anyway, it's ignoring a central part of God's judgment and justice to ignore legitimate court jurisdiction. Let me briefly prove that the courts of the Old Testament continue to be courts today. As to church courts, passages like Jeremiah 3, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 34, called the Old Testament elders, which were set up actually in Exodus 18, but called them shepherds, and it said there's faithful shepherds and there's unfaithful shepherds, so it's not automatically going to be a good court just because they're made up of these. Other names given for those shepherds are scribes, teachers, rulers, overseers, and judges, which, very interestingly, the New Testament calls elders by exactly the same titles. Uh, When they met together, they met at what was called a council, just like Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 22, that certain sins in in the church could be in danger of bringing that person before the council for judgment, the church council. Now, if you study this subject, you'll find that the New Testament church courts are identical to the Mosaic, not the Pharisees, but to the Mosaic system of synagogues, which were churches. Okay, it's identical. What about civil courts? Can they inflict judgment? Some people say no. I believe the Bible says yes. In Acts 25, verse 11, Paul upheld the legitimate function of even an unbelieving civil court, but insisted that that court was actually bound by God's law, even though it was a Roman court. It was bound by God's law. He said, for if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. In other words, he said, hey, if I'm guilty of spreading apostasy and blasphemy like these guys say that I am, I don't object to dying. Why? Because it's a legitimate law. He, he implies it continues to be a legitimate law and this is a legitimate court. But then he goes on to say, but if there is nothing... Where am I? Oh, yeah, here it is. But if there is nothing, these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. So he's using civil courts and treating them as legitimate to be used, even though they're unbelieving courts. And there are many other passages that do the same thing. Now, the last dictionary definition of judgment, and I'm going through these because we're going to be using this idea of judgment to deal with Later verses in this passage, very, very important you understand the background to what's going on in the mind of the Hebrews. Last dictionary definition of judgment is the penalty of those judged as guilty. Do the Old Testament criminal penalties continue to be true and just? Yes, many passages affirm this. Hebrews 2, verse 2, calls all the Old Testament civil penalties just penalties. They continue to be the definition of justice. To throw out God's definition of justice is to automatically embrace injustice, and that is what the vast majority of Christians do today. What they've done is they've thrown out God's standards, and they've embraced humanistic standards. This passage is a call to worship and adore God for His standards of judgment. Saints in Revelation 19 worship God. It says here, because his judgments are true and just you got socialists out there that throw around the term social justice all the time and what they mean by social justice is theft from certain group of people and redistribution of wealth that's not justice God would call that uh, an injustice the very opposite Justice can only be defined by God and His Word. These saints worship and adore God for judgment and justice and truth, and we need to do the same uh, uh, with them. We need to say with David, Lord, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. Now verse 2 goes on to give yet another reason for their praise of God. They praise God because of who was judged, and I find this very instructive as well for the current debates. Verse 2 goes on to say, because he has judged the great whore, who was the great whore? We've seen she was Israel, right? It was God's former adulterous wife. This whole section has been pronouncing God's penalty upon her, and his penalty for adultery is true and just. And why was she judged? Two reasons he gives here, because he has judged the great whore who corrupted the earth with her fornication and has avenged the blood of his slaves by her hand. So she was guilty of adultery and murder. Now this implies that the Old Testament penalties for adultery and murder continue to be true and just. Life imprisonment is not a just penalty for murder. God never allowed for prisons. It's injustice. Now let's examine this specific execution because I think it's one of dozens of verses in the New Testament that at least hint at the fact that Joel McDermott's book, The Bounds of Love, is wrong. More than one commentator mentions the burning of the whore's corpse, that it has the Old Testament background of the burning of a priest's daughter. Okay? The only crime in the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, that resulted in the burning of a body was when a priest's daughter committed adultery and became a whore. So this is a great passage, I think, for testing out uh, Joel McDermott's thesis that such laws have passed away. Chilton said, The prophets who spoke of Jerusalem as the whore had said that just as a priest's daughter who became a harlot was to be burned with fire, Leviticus 21, verse 9, so god would use jerusalem's former lovers the heathen nations to destroy her and burn her to the ground jeremiah 4 jeremiah 30 to 31 ezekiel 16 ezekiel 23 ezekiel 25 to 30 etc well just as the law's criminal penalty was applied by jeremiah to jerusalem in jeremiah's day chapters 17 through 19 of revelation apply the same criminal law to jerusalem in ad 70 Mackenzie's commentary says, Revelation 17, 16 says that the harlot would be stripped naked and burned with fire. Burning was the sentence of death prescribed in Leviticus for a harlot who was the daughter of a priest. The daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. That's a quote from Leviticus 21, 9. The punishment, he says... Of Harlot Babylon is burning because she was of the priestly class and had profaned her heavenly father. The temple was destroyed by fire in the holocaust of 870. Now this would not be a possible penalty unless Old Testament criminal laws for sexual crimes continued to be the standard for justice after the cross. And people might say, "Well, yeah, but she also committed murder. Maybe she was being put to death for her murder, not for her adultery." Um, The problem with that logic is that murderers never had their dead bodies burned. That was reserved for one specific crime. And Joel McDermott claims that the death penalty for sexual and most other crimes was ceremonial and passed away once the Messiah came. Now, if he had instead argued that it was a maximum penalty, it was not a mandated penalty, I would agree. I mean, that was always the case in the Old Testament. And the proof of that is the book of Hosea. Hosea did not mandate the, the death penalty, right, for, uh, for his wife, and there are other books uh, that prove the same. But he didn't say that. He says that it would no longer be justice to apply it. It would no longer be justice. Now, I'll grant you that this is using that crime symbolically to refer to spiritual adultery, and that the earthly capital penalty symbolizes how deserving of eternal punishment the sin is, But so is the death penalty for murder. You'll notice that she is being convicted of two crimes, adultery and murder. The point is that just as those two crimes had to be just earthly penalties to symbolize the spiritual in Jeremiah's time, they have to continue to be crimes to do so in AD 70. Are you following the logic there? Of course, there are many New Testament passages that uphold the death penalties for crimes that Joel McDermott say have passed away. In his book, The Bounds of Love, McDermott claims that the Old Testament civil laws against sodomy and adultery are no longer binding. And I'll just give you one example of a much clearer passage than the one we're looking at that show that's absolutely not true. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11 insists that the laws against fornicators and sodomites continue to be good laws. Now if you study where does the Old Testament say anything about sodomites, you will find that they are criminal laws with penalties attached. And so 1 Timothy 1 is upholding criminal laws for sexual crimes. Now sometime I hope to write a thorough critique of Joel McDermott's book, but this passage at least gives a hint that adultery should be taken seriously. Many humans find that offensive, But those in this chapter whose hearts are close to God say, hallelujah, they worship him. They come into agreement with God's legal system and judgment. But the last thing that we find God being worshipped for is probably the most offensive thing that modern man could possibly think about. They think this is far more offensive than any capital crime in the Old Testament, What is the offensive thing here? It's that apostate Israel is burning for all eternity after they have been punished in history for their crimes. The punishment God inflicted on earth was bad enough, but to inflict eternal punishment in hell seems horrifying on some levels. And yet we find people in this passage praising God and worshiping God for precisely this doctrine of hell. Look at verse 3. And a second voice said, hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. Okay, that's like saying, praise the Lord, she's going to burn forever. Okay, it's a clear reference to hell because hell is the only fire that goes forever and ever. There is no earthly fire that goes forever and ever. This is an eternal punishment that happens after the earthly historical punishment. Now, I will be quick to admit I am not as spiritual as these people in heaven who are rejoicing in this way. And I judge my lack of spirituality by the fact that even though I do worship God, even though I do praise Him, I'm not as enthusiastic as this angel is in glorying in this destruction of people. Now, perhaps if the Sadducees had killed my wife and confiscated my goods and tortured or killed my kids... I might be a little bit more prone to be rejoicing that God is giving them his justice in hell, but this actually spells the difference between the perfect angel and us. He can see so much more clearly because his judgment lines up with God's judgment. His judgment lines up perfectly with the Scripture, God's Word. But that we are also called to at least try to enter to some degree into this praise of our holy and just God can be seen by the last two points. First, the leaders of the church and other angelic beings agree with this voice, and they too praise God that there is a hell. I believe their ability to do what the angel did shows the degree of their spirituality and their closeness to God. Verse 4 says, And the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Now, Amen means I agree. And actually, if you look it up in almost any dictionary, they say it's a very strong affirmation of agreement. So it'd probably be better to say, I totally agree. There was a total agreement with the angel who had just finished saying, hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. And that their hearts were in this praise can be seen by the fact that they fell down and worshiped God while saying it. They worshipped God that he does not let people get away with apostasy and and, uh, horrible rebellion that the Sadducees had engaged in. Okay, our God is a God who brings justice. He does not let the Stalins and the Hitlers go unpunished. He does not let apostates who know the truth and then abandon the truth to go unpunished. But verse 5 goes one step further and actually commands all believers in heaven and on earth to praise God for the same reasons. It says, And a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his slaves and those who fear him, small and great. Maybe those of us who are still on earth have to be commanded to praise God because it doesn't come naturally, uh, because it's, it's something that we might otherwise be reluctant to do. But the very command shows that it is good to praise God for hell. And notice that he doesn't just command older people to do so. He commands everyone, both small and great, to do this. This is a maturity goal for all believers, to be able to worship God for exactly who he is. We are unbelievably immature if we only worship God for what we want God to be. We show maturity when we worship God for who he truly is and part of his being that must be admired is his retributive justice that punishes people in hell for all of eternity. Now, when I find it difficult to obey a command like this, I find it helps my soul to get in gear by meditating upon the scriptural reasons for why it is good. Why is hell a praiseworthy thing? I've already given you some hints of why this is the case but let me end with just a few more reasons why such worship and praise is actually very very good for us. Now I'm not going to tell you all the reasons why but let me at least point you in the right direction. First it reminds us that sin is far more heinous and hateful to God than we could possibly imagine. We tend to treat sin lightly and we tend to think God treats our sin lightly. We sin and act as if it's not a big deal. No, meditating on hell makes us realize that is not the case. It makes us treat sin much more seriously. See, we tend to treat the punishment of sin and think of that as horrible. God sees it far more horrible that there is the presence of sin and the nature of sin. Um, Worshiping God for hell is an incredible reminder of how much we really ought to hate our sins. Don't ever trifle with sin. It sent Jesus to hell so that you could be saved. And you are certainly worthy of hell if you do not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You church members, it doesn't matter that you're a member of Dominion Covenant Church, you church members will burn in hell for all of eternity if, you, if Jesus does not bear that punishment for you. If you do not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, flee to the cross while you have the opportunity. It is freely offered to you. And if you harden yourselves, you may at some point cross the line where it is impossible to repent. There is a line that people cross, where after that, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. So flee to the cross. The second reason why hell is praiseworthy is it reminds us that without Christ, we are nothing. We are nothing. Hell destroys the lie of the self-worth and the self-esteem movement. In fact, I cannot think of a better way of destroying the lie of that heresy. The more we meditate on the fact that we are worthy of hell, the less we're going to be enamored with ourselves and the more we're going to be focused on how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are incredibly awesome and praiseworthy. Our significance is in Jesus, our union with Jesus, not in how wonderful we are. In fact, uh, I forget now which book it was in, but A.W. Pink drew out about a couple dozen uh, illustrations or metaphors of what God thinks of us, and they are not pretty at all. God likens us to scum, to filthy rags, to a menstrual rag, an oozing pus-filled store, Now, some of you are troubled. You want to feel better about yourself, but you're troubled because people think poorly of you, and you realize, yeah, I've done some bad things. Well, cheer up, brothers and sisters. You are far, 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 far worse than those people think you are, and you're far worse than you think you are. So cheer up. Focus on Christ. Your worth is in Him. It has nothing to do with how good you are, but in Christ, God loves you just as He loves the Son. Your security has nothing to do with your self-worth. That is not a movement that God is honored with. We must fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. In fact, the fact that we deserve hell, I think, removes any ground for self-worth and self-esteem. Look to Christ, not yourself. Third, when we consider the fact that hell was created by God, Matthew 25, verse 41, exists by His will, Romans 9, verse 22, Shows forth His justice, His wrath, His power, His hatred. What does it do in terms of our attitude to God? It transforms it. We begin to have a fear of God. We begin to tremble at His holy word. We don't despise His word. It generates a fear within us. This is not a God that you can trifle with. There is too little, far too little fear of God in the church of Jesus Christ, and it's because there is an overemphasis on his love and mercy and an ignorance of some of his other attributes. Hebrews twelve twenty-eight through 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, very, very important, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably, how? With reverence, and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Not just God in relationship to unbelievers, but our God is a consuming fire. The fire of God's justice ought to produce reverence and godly fear within God's children. It ought to make us reverence his name and quit trivially abusing his name through euphemism. And you know the kind of euphemisms of his name that people throw out there. Sometimes people just outright blaspheme, but the euphemisms themselves are a misuse of his name. There is no fear of God when you do things like that. One blogger put it this way If the fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom, and it is, then losing the fear of God in any generation will only be disastrous. Faithful preaching on the doctrine of eternal punishment will rescue the pathetic state of the church from our Santa God. That same verse in Hebrews gives us a fourth reason why hell is praiseworthy. It makes us cling to grace tighter. It makes us cling to Christ tighter. It makes us appreciate the gospel so much more. One theologian said, here's a reality we sometimes miss God would have been praised by the heavenly host for all of eternity if he would have damned every single member of the human race to hell because in so doing, he would be the God of justice, the one who punishes sin. If God had simply given us what we deserved, the angels would have glorified him forever and ever. It is seeing the wrath that we deserved, the wrath he could have given us, that causes us to marvel at the mercy we've received. Understanding hell for what it is helps us to understand our salvation for what it is. Unmerited and unnecessary grace from a God who is both just and merciful. God would have been perfectly just in not giving any of us salvation. Did you know that he did not offer salvation to a single angel that fell with Lucifer? There was a rebellion way early with Lucifer and a whole bunch of people decided to join with him whole bunch of angels, and God divides up the angels into the elect and the reprobate, and God has not offered salvation to a single reprobate angel. I challenge you to find any scripture where they had the least chance, and God did not owe them a chance. Well, The point is, God did not owe us a chance for salvation either. He gave it to us out of his overflowing goodness and grace and mercy. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. We have no claim upon it, but we worship him because praise God, hallelujah, he chose to save us. It was sovereign, unmerited, electing grace that saw nothing good in us whatsoever that moved him to receive us. Why? So that he would be glorified. It's a God-centered reason. It has nothing to do with you. Now, he loves you only because he elected you in the son. His love could not abide on you. The wrath of God abides upon everyone who is outside of Jesus Christ. If you do not put your faith in Jesus, His wrath abides on you right now. It's only in Christ that you have security. So hell teaches us to value. Value the gospel. Do not take it lightly. Fifth, A true understanding of hell shows us that God's victory is comprehensive. As the same theologian said, hell doesn't exist because God loses. Hell exists because God wins over sin. If hell is the anti-heaven, then you have a realm that stands outside God's domain, an area of creation that his kingdom has not conquered. But hell is not the anti-heaven. While the new heaven and earth are a place where God's grace is displayed, hell is a place meant to display his justice. Both are praiseworthy and both celebrate God's victory over sin and death. In heaven, that death is defeated in the cross of Christ. In hell, that death is defeated in eternal punishment. Hell, like heaven, declares God's victory. They just declare it in different ways. And if you study the various books on the doctrine of hell, and there are plenty of them out there now. Some of them are horrible. Some of them are good. But if you study them, you will find plenty of reasons to worship and to praise God for the doctrine of hell. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73, you know, he's so frustrated with the fact that the wicked get away with stuff. And he said, where are you, God? How How come the wicked are treated better by you than I am treated? Until he saw their end. He saw the doctrine of hell and he saw the doctrine of heaven and it all made his frustrations disappear because he realized in eternity all wrongs are made right. Hitler, Stalin, others like that. You know, Stalin murdered millions and millions of people. Well, he's not going to get away with that, is he? He's going to be punished from all of eternity. Rapists who have tortured their victims are going to be punished for all of eternity in hell if they do not put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now Jonah comes along and he says, well, that's not fair. That's not fair that you would would allow this torturing rapist or this Stalin, Stalin didn't put his faith in Christ, but somebody like him, it's not fair for those people to be saved. It's not fair for these, these Ninevites who have tortured my friends to be saved. He was bitter over what had happened, and what God's response was, it's not fair for any of you to be saved. None of you. Every one of us deserves hell. The only thing that makes it just is because Jesus died in place of those who put their faith in Him. That's the only thing that makes it just. Now, I'm not going to take you the time, that time to tell you all of the benefits of worshiping God for hell, but let me end by quoting a few more summary statements by James Hamilton, a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He says, In sum, hell glorifies God because it shows that he keeps his word. It shows his infinite worth, lasting forever. It demonstrates his power to subdue all who rebel against him. It shows how unspeakably merciful he is to those who trust him. It upholds the reality of love by visiting justice against those who reject God, who is love. It vindicates all who suffered to hear or who suffered to proclaim the truth of God's word. And it shows the enormity of what Jesus accomplished when he died to save all who would trust him from the hell they deserved. If there were no hell... There would be no need for the cross. Now, I want you to evaluate yourselves this morning and do so very honestly. If you struggle to worship and to praise the God that this book of Revelation portrays so clearly before you, I would call you to get converted and to pray that God would give you a new heart, a heart that shares His vision, That shares his hatred for sin, his love for righteousness, his passion for justice. I think this passage is a great state of your spiritual heart. By the way, Matthew 7 verse 21 says there's going to be a lot of church members who are going to burn in hell. And they're going to be surprised. They're going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, done all these ministries in your name? And Jesus said, I never knew you. You were never regenerate in the first place. I never knew you. Depart from me. That's what he's going to say to church members. Why? Because they did not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If your heart rebels against this passage and completely refuses to praise and worship God, it may be that you are either unregenerate or your heart is still clouded by demonic attachments that you need to rebuke and get off of you. If you can praise and worship Him for His judgments, it is a sign that you are beginning that process of being conformed to His image more and more from glory to glory. But for sure, see this doctrine in light of the gospel. Jesus said in John 6, verse 37, the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. I fear for some of you children. My heart has been aching for some of you children, because I think some of you children are not regenerate. It just scares me to death to think of covenant children who will burn in hell for all of eternity, because they've ignored the message. They have fallen asleep. Satan has grabbed the word out of their hearts. Well, I'll tell you, after this morning, if you die, and you go to hell, you will not be able to say to God, I did not have a chance. I did not know. I did not have a chance. Christ says, come to him. Come to him. He said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Flee to Jesus and trust him alone for your salvation. He is your only, your only security from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Lord God, every one of us would be blind as bats, would have dull hearing, uncaring about this message. If you had not regenerated us, I think about myself, Father, growing up in a covenant home, not knowing you until I was in 12th grade. And I'm so grateful, Lord. I'm so grateful that you opened up my eyes. And instead of just fearing hell, I feared you. I feared my sins. I hated my sins. I wanted to be saved from my sins. And I pray, oh God, you would generate within your people a holy hatred for sin. And a holy love for your righteousness and your justice. Father, there are so many people who worship a God made in their own image. I pray that you would help us to see you as you are, to glory in you as you are. Oh, Father, help us to cast aside our sins that we tend to cling to. Father, these are filthy, filthy idols. They are nothing worth clinging to. And yet somehow, our hearts tend to cling to them. And I pray that you would cause your people to despise their sin, to be revolted by the things that put Jesus to death and made him be scourged. Oh, God, grab our hearts. Your will be done. Your will be done, Father, in our lives. Your kingdom come into each one of our lives more and more. We want to glorify you. We want to be able to rejoice in what you rejoice in, to hate what you hate. So, Father, I pray that you would do a lasting work in our lives, and I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.